0: This episode of Inside MusicCast is supported by West Coast Music Magazine, a quarterly music magazine that covers West Coast smooth, fusion grooves, and midnight disco. Learn more at musicfromthewestcoast.com and by Amazon. Now you can support Inside MusicCast by shopping at Amazon. Simply go to insidemusiccast.com, click on the Amazon banner, and shop. There's no additional cost to you, and the items you buy will help support the show. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio. Philadelphia native Jim Beard's path to music success was inevitable. His interest in music flourished when he was very young, with jazz being the centerpiece of his palette. Jim studied jazz piano privately with the great George Shearing when he was in his teens, and then went on to the renowned Indiana University School of Music, where he was under the tutelage of legendary jazz composer David Baker. After his move to New York City in 1985, Jim quickly connected to other great musicians as a recording artist, producer, composer, and touring musician with the likes of Bill Evans, Mike Stern, Dave Liebman, Bob Berg, John McLaughlin, Wayne Shorter, Michael Brecker, and Pat Matheny. Jim is also credited with work with an amazing list of other musicians including Steve Vai, John Mayer, Walter Becker, Esperanza Spaulding, Al Jarreau, Dizzy Gillespie, Chris Bode, David Sanborn, Bela Fleck, and Larry Carlton, just to name a few. Since 1990, Jim has released six solo albums and since 2008 has been a touring member with Steely Dan. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Jim Beard. Hey Jim, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks,
0: nice to be here. When you first wanted to test, you know, the musical waters when you were a kid, I, I read that uh, it was the tuba that initially interested in, in you, and you also had an interest in drums and sax. But I, it was your parents who, you know, in a smart move, they steered you towards piano. And uh, you were seven years old, I think, around that time. And in hindsight, that essentially set the stage for your career. And were you reluctant to engage in the piano after wanting to s- explore those other instruments, or did you <laughs> accept what your parents were offering and? Done right in
1: i pretty much accepted it um my earliest memories of uh santa claus and christmas uh, a musical instrument was always at the top of my wish list yeah um <laughs> i guess yeah i guess it's safe to say that uh you know it was just in the cards for me from the beginning
2: yeah yeah, yeah.
1: and i i enjoyed that the weirdest thing about starting music lessons was that um we didn't have a piano yet at our house and uh hmm. I had to go to uh, this woman named uh, Mrs. Dawson, who had a house near the public swimming pool, and
2: uh-huh.
1: that was just kind of weird to go to someone else's house to, to practice piano. And <laughs> yeah. I think it was within six weeks we, uh, my parents bought a Boston McPhail upright piano for seventy five dollars.
0: Wow,
1: <laughs> and, uh, and I could stay home and practice.
0: Yeah, uh, is it safe to assume that your your parents were also musical as well?
1: Uh, my father had taken piano lessons when he was uh, a child, and uh, didn't really, you know, he didn't keep it up, and uh, my mother was just a huge music lover, she um, constantly had, uh, I think it was called W, it wasn't WFIL, I'm trying to remember, the the Philadelphia Classical Music Station was always playing
0: in the house. sure. I'm just curious, what about the tuba, and the drums, and the sax? I mean, did you ever return to focus on those instruments at all, or did you just pretty much fly <laughs> off with the well, piano? Well, I,
1: I, uh, let's see, I started piano when I was, I guess, six or seven, and then uh, when I was nine, I started clarinet lessons, because I was told, you know, the people in the nose said, well, before you can take saxophone lessons, you should take clarinet lessons. Okay. So that's what I did. I took a couple years of clarinet, and then I started studying saxophone. And then uh, I think when I was about 14 or 15, I... Took a couple of years of of break. Bass lessons, mm-hmm. string
0: bass. You know, I, I read something about. You know, speaking of your, your parents, I you know, I read something uh, that uh, kind of interesting that your father and mine have in common. And, and when I was a kid, my dad loved building electronics from kits, including our first color television. He it was a company called Heath Kit. <laughs> and right. did you follow in your dad's footsteps in the yeah. same sort of technological regard? Well,
1: one of my hobbies was um, radio controlled airplanes. Oh, cool! Wow, so cool. of course, um, I had I, I built the plane from a kit, that the, the electronics were Heath kit, So yeah, um, I did kind of get into that for a minute. But yeah, my 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 dad, I mean, God, I was I remember seeing that television kit spread all over the basement.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I think it took at least uh, six months to make. I don't know how long it, how long it took your dad, but.
0: About that, yeah, because they, they would ship you a new box each week with a different step and a different set of parts. And uh, I remember – Right. You know, I was like five years old when he did it, and he would just basically say, uh, All right, check out the resistors and hand me the one that has yellow, orange, and brown. you know. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd sift – Yeah, it. I remember that too. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> I'd sift for that one and hand it to him, and I thought I was you know, really doing a great job of helping him out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did it work? It <laughs> did. The TV worked. Way yeah. to go.
3: <laughs> so anyway – Hey, All right. hey, Jim, um, you know, your, um, your music education is pretty advanced, uh, especially at a very early age. In fact, you were already, you know, diving into arranging and, uh, for jazz piano, even as a teenager. And, uh, you studied under George Shearing, who was amazing, a British jazz pianist, but, uh, studying under him too. But with such an advanced education at a very young age? Um, you know, was your vision, uh, I guess, I guess your path was already in career, uh, it was already um, being laid, right, at that time.
1: Yeah, I uh, I just had such a strong love for, for music, uh-huh. I mean, of all kinds, too. I mean, uh, if I had a sick day from school, I'd stack my turntable up, and it would be, uh, you know, maybe a record of Chopin etudes, followed by Elton John, followed by Earl Garner, <laughs> yeah. followed by Chick Corea Improvisations, followed yeah. by, you know, Hocus Pocus by Focus. Um,
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So,
1: I took um, an arranging class in high school, and just, you know, we had to do an arrangement for the concert band, and uh, that was in, I guess, about 11th grade. And then, the uh, music teacher in my high school, actually, asked me to be the, uh, the, the jazz band director in my senior year. So, you know, I mean, and people were kind of approaching me to do things as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I started messing around with composing. I, have, uh, I still actually had the old uh, music notebook with uh, songs that I was coming up with. Cool. And uh, yeah, it just, it just all felt like it was something I, I wanted to do.
3: So you never really considered any other really career path,
2: did you?
1: Not really. Oh, okay. um, I guess I was lucky being the youngest of three children. Because, uh, you know, lots of people say, you know, the parents make most of their mistakes with the older kids.
2: <laughs> and
1: uh, my brother, my older brother, had wanted to uh, be a music major. And basically my parents said, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to study engineering. And, well, he never finished college and took a few hundred dollars in a backpack and disappeared to Europe for a while. So, I think when I came, when I came along and I said, Yeah, I want to major in music, they were like, Yeah, you're going to major in
3: music. <laughs> <laughs> you were the last hope that they had, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, as a side note to, um, your studies with George Shearing, you know, me and Rick, we understand that Natalie Cole was actually enrolled. Was it in the same, the same workshop there, Jim?
1: Well, I went, I, uh, went to Chautauqua two years in a row, uh, um, to uh, study with George in, uh-huh. in, that, in the uh, sort of masterclass format okay. before I started studying privately with him, and the second year, yes, Natalie Cole was was in that class.
3: Wow! Did you ever have any chance to work with her in any in any capacity at all? Did you? Do you what do you? No, remember? I
1: never have. I, no, that, that that never happened. Yeah. But I mean, I think you know, just the way George plays, and, and uh, you know, I, I was exposed to him when I was fourteen, quite young. But I mean, this whole approach to playing piano is very much, um, he's very much into arrangements and uh, kind of like uh, theme and variation interpretations of of songs. And uh, that had a a pretty strong impact on me.
0: Wow, cool. You know, on the the same topic regarding uh, George Shearing, I once read something about uh, a pretty stark memory that you have of him when you were, I think, 15 years old and you volunteered to be critiqued playing a song uh, by Benny Golson called Whisper Not, and, and you described, you know, the outcome as being ripped apart. What happened, and, and why did he rip you apart?
1: Well, um, yeah, it, was, it was the end of the week uh-huh. of classes, and, and the last day he was asking people, you know, to if they want to come up and play with his rhythm section, and I got up the nerve to do it, and I mean, basically what happened is he's, he's blind.
0: Uh-huh.
1: He didn't me.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And I was the youngest one in the class. Everybody else in the class was professionals in their 20s and 30s. Wow. Or and even older. And uh, so he just assumed that I was one of those. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and he pointed out lots of things that he felt I was doing wrong. <laughs> right. And he was absolutely right in what he was saying. Right. But um, after that, uh, one of the people in, in his class told him, you know, Informed him that that uh, I was four, uh, fifteen years old, uh-huh. yeah, and, and he felt, you know, then he felt he was too hard on me. He was too, um, you know, he, I think he felt some kind of regret, mm-hmm. which is when he then said, you know, if you ever come through New York, come to my apartment and we'll uh, we'll do private lessons.
0: Yeah, and then I think you did, and I think didn't you study with him for like three or four years?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I would um, get one of my parents to drive me up there at least, you know, once every couple months. And uh, and I would go see him, even when I started university. Uh, I'd come back on breaks and I'd go up and, and see him. That's when I first got to meet uh, Fred Hirsch. It was uh, one of the times I was a Georgian. He said, uh, do you mind if I call this young piano player? I think he's really marvelous. And, you know, we could do some uh, piano duets. And uh, he said his name is Fred Hirsch. So I gave him a call, and uh, that was my first introduction to him. Wow, that's cool. And also one of my favorite uh, George Shearing stories is uh, we were, we finished the lesson and uh, he says, oh, he says, I want to, before you go, I want to play you something. And I said, okay. So we go into his music room, which was completely dark because he doesn't need lights. And he had, he had all these file cabinets with his records in them. And they're all labeled with Braille. And he's feeling around and he pulls out this record and doing all this stuff blind put it on the turntable, started, and it was heavy weather weather report,
2: okay, yeah <laughs> yeah
1: and uh he says, oh, I just think this is the most you know wonderful music you know he was such a an English gentleman, and yeah. uh so many traditional sort of conservative things about him, and then mm-hmm. for him to just um introduce me to weather report was a uh, was an interesting experience.
0: Kind of on that note, and this goes backwards just a little bit, when you were 13, you received an album by the Thad Jones-Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra called uh, Potpourri, and that also had an effect on your overall outlook on jazz, and I think, from what I understand, it was sort of an eye-opener for you, so to speak. And Tell us what you heard on that specific album that sparked you and and turned your ear to jazz.
1: Yeah, my brother gave me that album, and uh, I think, you know, I was in the, the junior high school a jazz band, and we were—you know—I don't really remember what we were playing, but it was—you know—a lot of those cranked-out commercial, you know, publishing company charts that aren't really <laughs> right. that great,
0: right, right,
1: and stuff that's designed for you know junior high school kids. So just to get the uh, fad and now recording was—you know—it was just like this door just opened. I was like, what is this? You know, it just—it—it's yeah. just so lush and rich and mm-hmm. and dense and swinging and joyful with the solos and and uh it was like oh okay that's what that's what this stuff can sound like mm-hmm. and uh, he's just such an uh was such an incredible arranger um yeah so that's probably uh, another another one of the seeds that sent me on the on a certain direction
3: mm-hmm. very cool yeah. hey in the 60s you grew up in in philly and um you know, which from a, from a musical perspective, it's it's such a significant town. when it comes down to, uh, to to influencing music, you know, even though you were you know headed down a musical path that included you know that steady diet of jazz and, and classical instruction, did Philly, did that Philly sound um, also have an influence uh, to you? Were you aware of that Philly sound?
1: Probably the Philly sound that that um, had the most influence on me was um, the, the the Philly Motown. Um, Uh I just remember when my sister's nine years older than me and she would be getting ready for school and uh, always have the radio on and I was just hearing these great, you know, 60s Philly pop songs coming on Uh and I'd just get on her bed and and jump, you know, (laughs) for the the whole time, you know, (laughs) she's getting ready for school. And uh, so, you know, even though I, uh, you know, later I was uh, studying and, and pursuing you know, I guess you could call it serious forms of music, genres of music, right. classical and jazz. Uh, I, uh, you know, great pop music was in my, you know, the, the love for that was in me from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Things that are just crafted and done really well, which you know, so much of that pop music was. Oh right. Um, and and something I used to like to do from a very young age was listen to records with my head. There was a, my dad, actually, the stereo was also Heath Kid
2: um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: And, uh, and uh, my dad built that. And at uh, the time, it wasn't true stereo. The one speaker was sort of in the in the uh, hi-fi cabinet that was on the living room floor.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And the other speaker was kind of up in the ceiling on the other side of the room near the bathroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would just lay in front of... The speaker that was on the on the on the living room floor, and uh-huh. listened to uh, you know Herbert Tijuana Brass, you know whipped cream and other delights, and, sure. And just always always like with some sort of fantasy in my head going on, like strange things. Like I was in the band, and uh-huh. you know I was I was playing the, the Rimba with the with the mallets in my feet. You know, just very strange um, <laughs> images and fantasies.
3: You know, when, when you think of Philly and you think of the sound, especially the soul stuff, you know, you, you know, I'm just looking at some of the artists, you know, like stylistics the spinners. I mean, even Todd Run, you know, Run Grin was there and,
2: uh, yeah, you know, Todd's
3: great. you know, Patti LaBelle. I mean, it's such a mix, you know, you've, you, even, you know, Hollow Notes. Hollow Notes,
0: of course. It, yeah. It's
3: just, uh, you know, just an, it's an amazing city. If everybody just takes a close look at, uh, what that really, uh, what that city, uh, what Philly really spawned, um it's it's pretty amazing when you think about the influence that they've had, you know, on uh you know on music overall, wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Jimmy Mac, when are you coming back? Um,
2: yeah.
1: That was the, that was the radio station WFIL. And I remember I was in mm-hmm. a car we were riding somewhere and uh the song played and my sister absolutely loved that song so much she was hopping around in the car and the DJ came on and said well, that's our number one song for the day, so we're going to play it again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome.
0: They
1: played the song back-to-back, back and, and and then she just had another fit. <laughs> um,
0: well, I, I don't know if you know this, but Eddie and I are, are based in Indianapolis, and uh, just up the road from Indiana, Indiana University, and uh, I wondered how a Philly kid ended up at IU. <laughs>
1: well, I applied to uh, several schools,
0: uh-huh.
1: and I was accepted to all of them. And and the way I remember it is that I I got a map out and IU was the one that was furthest from my home.
2: <laughs>
1: so that's
0: how it I works. picked
1: Indiana. Yeah, I just uh, you know I was ready to uh, I was ready to sort of
0: right. get going
1: and uh, move on. And I I think I just thought that like uh, more physical distance the more physical distance the, the better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's great, and make your parents think twice about visiting you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's too right. far away. <laughs> well, you know, I use you. You made a good choice, you know, because I use School of Music is obviously world renowned, and you study jazz under the tutelage of, of the great David Baker and, of course, you studied classical under John Ogden. And, uh, you know, living here in Indiana and, you know, staying into the music scene in this area for many years, you know, David Baker's name alone mm-hmm. garners such instant respect, especially still here in in this area. So tell us about your experience with David and, and, you know, the most important elements of his teachings that, you know, you've carried with you throughout your career. Oh, boy. Um... Yeah, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah.
2: Right.
1: And, um, well, he was on sabbatical my um, my freshman year, so he only kind of popped through. i remember never meeting him. Yeah. He was a le- uh, you know this missing legendary guy for <laughs> for one whole year, and Dominic Spira had uh, taken over as the head of the department for uh-huh. that year. And then uh, and then he was back for my second year. I guess that you know the the best thing, my my favorite thing about him was. Uh, his enthusiasm, mm-hmm. uh, you, you just couldn't deny that it, his love of what he did, mm-hmm. he was just completely into it. And he, you know, whether it was directing the band or, or giving a, a music history class or a private lesson, he just, he was just always 120% there. Yeah. And, uh, plus he had also, you know, he, he was, uh, a veteran of the road and he had great stories anecdotes to uh, to share all the time and it sort of made it easier for the students to uh, just to be enthused and, and to enjoy it sure because because he had already done what so many of us wanted to do and he liked to hang he was just he just had a you know just, he just had this buoyant, youthful energy all the time he'd, he'd really? come to hang out at some of the parties and you know he just he <laughs> that's was, cool he was
3: nonstop. It was
0: amazing. yeah. Hey, this IU. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: yeah. Oh well. <laughs> <Ain't> enough <laughs> so there. It's a great school, but it, it's known for its parties too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Hey, listen, we're we, we're uh, we're
3: sort of less familiar with uh, John Ogden, but in hindsight, you know, when you look back over your career, it's it's very obvious that you know jazz sort of outweighed the the other styles, including maybe even classical. But I don't I don't know for sure. So tell us. Uh, you You know, when you think back and studying the classical genre with John, and, um, you know, so how did this training sort of cross over with the jazz and and how did it affect, you know, everything, you know, that was in front of you?
1: Um, Yeah, that was really a very interesting uh, experience Mm -hmm. um, being with him for, I think I studied a total of three years with him. And it might not have even happened. It was just it it was required for my my program. I had to take gotcha. applied classical lessons. You know, if I hadn't been required to do that, I might not have uh, spent the time with him. But the few things I remember is, you know, it, it, you know, everybody knew he, he was very eccentric. He was actually um, clinically diagnosed with schizophrenia. Oh,
2: really? And
1: uh, he was such a gentle giant. You know, he's a big guy, but he was very gentle. And But, you know, he's got to be the most incredible sight reader I've ever known. Well, there's a couple of things. After all our lessons, we would always go to this place. Uh, It's probably, I think it's still there, Bear's place. And uh, just go and get a coffee. Because he'd just want to hang out and talk things, you know, Mm -hmm. music or otherwise. And then usually at the end of every lesson, like the last 10 minutes, he would, I mean, he'd say, he'd want to stop the classical stuff and he'd say, can you just play some jazz for me? He'd just want to sit there and listen to me play. <laughs>
2: That's cool. Yeah.
1: And then I remember some lessons where I wanted to hear some pieces and I would bring music books in and, and you know, I'd ask him to play them and he would play them. And uh it was just amazing. I was actually studying composition with a man named Thomas Beaversdorf who was uh kind of on the, uh, you know, the Out there, um, Schoenberg, twelve tone—you know—that was his thing. So I was writing a piece that was in that world, and it was uh, a piano piece, and I couldn't even play it. I was just going for this, you know, (laughs) wild, weird, crazy stuff. But I took it to John Ogden. I said, "I want to hear this thing that I'm writing." (laughs) And he he he, he played it for me. uh, Really. Yeah, it was just really something. But he was he was so eccentric. I mean, sometimes I come in, he would have his he'd still have his pajama top on. He never really kind of finished <laughs> changing in the morning.
3: Yeah. So let me ask you about that composition that you played that was beyond your your dexterity or your abilities of uh, of playing it. So when you when he played that piece for you, did was that intended? Was that intentionally what uh, you wanted to hear as to what you penned? Could you
2: hear it in well, your head?
1: What I realize is that. um I was writing the piece because it was an assignment and I was taking composition and, and uh, mm-hmm. it was a requirement for me to do. I think what writing it and hearing it played galvanized for me was that, um it, it, it just reassured me that that kind of music is not my cup of tea. <laughs> and,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> it's just, I, 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 I think I realized then that, uh, I prefer my music to sound like Music. (laughs) Exactly. uh, I don't like my music to sound like a
0: science experiment. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That's funny. Well, you know, um your Steely Dan bandmate, John Harrington, he's been a guest on our show a few times and you know, Eddie and I we, we love John, he's one of our favorite guests and uh but but the two of you go way back to your time at at Indiana University as I think you guys were in a band together that played mostly in bars, you know, tunes by Stevie Wonder Prince, Earth, Wind and Fire, a lot of funk, soul and pop, you know, dance music. But but um not only was, was John in this band, but you've also had some, you know, other amazing uh Uh, guys like Kenny Aronoff and Chris Bodie in the mix and, you know, some (laughs) amazing talent. So I don't know why I've never bothered to ask John about this band, but tell me a little bit about your experience uh, with this and working with, you know, such talented musicians at, at, you know, while you were there in college.
1: Um, okay. Well, uh, I got my first Fender Rhodes. uh, I begged my parents to get me one. Uh, I, that was, I guess I was around 14. Uh And, uh, I can thank uh, Kirby Hancock thrust head, uh, for us headhunters
2: for making yes. me absolutely need to have a Fender Rhodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when I got to college
1: uh, at IU, that might have been my second year. I bought uh, Luke Gillespie's his used Hunter uh, D six Claw Okay. And uh, I, and still my you know. It was Herbie Hancock, Headhunter's Thrust, to thank for that. Yeah. And then I, I think it was between my second and third year at uh, university. I worked on a cruise ship just for the summer.
0: That's right, yeah. And uh, <laughs> we were
1: based in Miami. You know, we were in Miami every Saturday. There was one of those really big music stores down there. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. But I, we would, some of us would just go to see what's in the music store. And they had a Cromar string machine one of those Saturdays. And I played it, and it sounded like the string machine on Herbie Hancock, Headhunter's Thrust, and all that. Yeah. So I took all the money that I'd saved up to that point in the summer and, and bought the Krumar string machine. Awesome. So yeah. I, I had this, uh, you know, set up in my apartment. That was, you know, the roads, the it and the string machine. So I guess it was going into my fourth year. I went to IU for a total of six years. But, but this, this band was being formed, and they asked me, they knew I had this gear if I wanted to play in it. And I, they told me who's in it, you know, John. And John agreed to do it. And I said, Ken Aaronloff sent it. And, uh, I just, yeah, it just sounded like a great idea to do it. Cause, you know, uh, from, you know, since I was, uh, in high school into my first years in college, I was just a real jazzer. You know, I, I yeah. just, that's all I listened to. It's all I practiced for hours upon hours. And, sure. and um, but all during that, I, I was what I like to call, you know, a closet uh, pop music appreciator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this became the opportunity for me to um, sort of come out of the closet. <laughs> and um,
2: <laughs>
1: we were doing Motown stuff and, and uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and yeah. And it also just told me that, um, you know, I think it, it, it just, you know, a lot of serious music students can. You're not careful, you can get sort of a, a snobbish attitude, you know, and uh, and uh, have a very high regard for the particular niche that you're studying.
2: Right.
1: And but some of these songs, which are just, you know, a lot of them are are simple groove type tunes. And mm. uh, I discovered that playing a certain part on a certain song like that was just as challenging as playing a good solo on something like Moments Notice, and, sure. and it really just opened up my eyes uh to sort of the the deepness of, of pop music.
0: Was that um just curious, was was your band called Stream Winner?
1: No, they they were based out of indie. I remember them.
0: Yeah, because I think Kenny, um, Ar- Kenny was in that band as well. Uh, he was in that
1: band too, yeah.
0: And uh, uh
1: our band was called Kicks, K I X.
0: Oh, okay. All right.
1: Interesting. And uh there's there was basically our band and, and the rival band was called Kilo. Okay and uh, Sean Pelton
0: was the drummer in that band gotcha well guys let's pause and let's check out some music and uh, from the 1990 album Song of the Sun here's the track Baker's Annex and this is from our guest today Jim Beard on Inside Music Cast
3: Hey, Jim, in 85, you made the move to, to New York, and, um, you know, a lot of the guys that we interview on, on this show, you know, they go there, the Nashville or to L.A., you know, and it's always something that, that it's something that's magnetic that draws them there. So what perpetuated this move? You know, uh, was it difficult to, to, to get to New York and find the gigs, and uh, once you got there, how did you handle that transition?
1: I think I decided I want to move to New York maybe even before I got to IU, and certainly when I was, you know, because I was being shuttled up there to study with George and, and uh, um, when I would have, a you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or spring break and I'd fly home to visit family in, in Philly, I you know, I mean, more often than not, I would say hi and like, okay, tomorrow I'm taking a train up to New York and hanging, and crashing at somebody's place. Mm, yeah. You know, I'll see you, you know, the day before I fly back to Indiana. Yeah. I finished uh, my last year there. I worked for a year on a cruise ship to uh, save money to move to New York. It was uh, the SS Norway, which was the largest cruise ship uh, in the world at that time. And okay. it had uh, about 45 full-time employed musicians. Wow!
2: Whoa.
1: We did a, an Atlantic crossing, and Connie Stevens was sort of the theater musical guest
2: oh, awesome. for
1: show. And her band, she had a band from LA, except she had, uh, two keyboard players in her group usually. And they both missed the boat.
3: Whoa.
1: <laughs> yeah, they both <laughs> Seriously? missed the So it was, uh, Mike Klinko and, and, uh, Joey Screamer, who's now in Boston, he was the drummer. So they needed, they, they needed to get someone on board, and they asked me, because they knew I, I had a DX7 at that point. And, yeah. Uh, and they asked if I could try to learn both, both books, you know, the piano and the keyboard parts. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And like, it was just a ball. I mean, I, it was really, I just sort of completely got into the challenge of, you know, getting this show together, like on very short notice. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> they really, you know, I guess we did maybe two or three nights, two shows a night. And after the last night, uh, Connie Stevens called me up to her suite. And uh, the guys were there, and they said, Hey, Jim, how much, like, what do you think about moving to Los Angeles? You know, you can do this act, and I uh, you think you'd do really great out there. So they, you know, for for a second there, I was like, wow, maybe I should move to L.A. <laughs> and really? um, but then I thought about it some more, and I said no. Wow. And,
0: uh, you just didn't want to uproot from New York? You wanted to keep your foundation there in New York?
1: I wanted to keep, yeah, I, I kind of felt like I was on a mission, you know. I see. It's just... Yeah. It was just in my thinking for so long. It just right. seemed like I had to do it. But I mean, you know, when I got to New York, I um, I, I practiced what I call the yes policy. I just said yes to absolutely everything. <laughs> I had to get money. Um, I played said yes to every jam session invitation. I I accompanied tap dance classes. Uh, you know, I, I I played for Broadway auditions, sight reading for the singers. Uh, you know, club dates, bar yeah. mitzvahs, you name it. I just right basically um,
3: said just to everything amazing you know the, right around that time you know the, you're making that transition you had uh, you had your DX and uh, you know it was funny today on Facebook somebody posted something I think it was um, regarding uh, James Newton Howard and Friends the old you know the classic album you know with the guys from Toto and um, and they were talking about the sense about the GS1 and the DX and the FM you know synthesis that Yamaha had just developed you know and uh and what what did you think of when you got your hands first on that DX7? Didn't it change everything? Because you know I've, I'm a, I'm a keyboardist too, but I remember when I got my first DX also, it it changed everything. You know the every the whole industry.
1: Well, John Harrington could tell you about this when I got when I wanted you know when when they, when it was introduced the yeah. DX. You know it was just in every you know trade paper magazine, music <laughs> yeah. magazine, just like this is you know life is never going to be the same from now on. You know?
2: Right, exactly. That's how they were.
1: It, it, and uh, so I read about it, and I kind of said, No hey, know I think I need to get one of these, because it was at the time it was at the beginning of this bar band kicks, and it yeah. just seemed like that that was the missing um uh, keyboard with my setup, and um so I started calling around, and uh actually, I had to borrow money from my sister to get it as well, uh, um, yeah, but the music store in Bloomington said, um. I'd have to wait four to six months because they're, you know, they don't, they're already spoken for and bought up.
2: Wow. So then I
1: started calling music stores in Indianapolis, and it was the same thing. So then I somebody told me about a music store in Louisville, and uh, I called them, and they said, well, if you want to take one, we can have one here next week. Jeez. So I did, and uh, I got my old friend John Harrington to drive me to Louisville to get my <laughs> first, uh, DX7.
3: That's awesome. I had, I, I was in South Texas at the time and I had to drive to San Antonio to Alamo Music to pick up my DX7. And, oh, wow. uh, oh, but what a journey, though. When just going over there, you're just like, gaga, what is it about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I mean, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, your, uh, your crew Mark. but then again, you get your, uh, you know, let's just talk about keyboards a little bit because, um, you know, you get into your, the arps and what was happening with those early generation synths. And it's go, starting to go away from the, 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 the real analog vintage sound. Everything started to modulate into the digital. You know, what, how did you see that transition from the, from the the synth stage and how it was changing now, how did you approach that compositionally? Do um, You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of uh, well, when I worked on the cruise ship, I um I had my DX7, and at that point I didn't take it with me, but I also had a uh, a micro moog.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Uh,
1: the ship was in dry dock for about three weeks in Germany, uh, and I was just kind of i got one of those euro uh euro rail passes and just trained around europe and i was in berlin and i went into a music store and that's when i saw my first Fostex four track recorder wow <laughs> and uh you know that was cutting edge you know new stuff at that point oh yeah and, uh, so again i took you know a lot of my ship savings and, and bought that thing <laughs> took it back and i started um demoing my compositions and uh but I, I noticed that I didn't like, you know, I tried to get a lot of different sounds with the DX, but there was another keyboard player on the ship named uh, Jeff Walters, and he had a, uh, I guess it was a Juno that was out in 1984, whatever that Juno would have been.
2: Yeah, that might Analog. Been, yeah.
1: And he wasn't using it. He said, look, you know, if you want to just take it to your cabin, it's fine with me. So then I had the, uh, I had, you know, Ultimate Stand with the DX7, his Juno, and, uh, or was it a Jupiter 8, maybe? I don't know what year that came out. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and also my RX, what was it, RX-11 drum machine? And my Fossix 6 4 track, and I would just start demoing. I think that was like, would you know, made me uh, uh, take the bait and decide that producing and, and studio, the whole studio world could really be fun and interesting and challenging. I guess within a year or two of moving to New York, I started asking to be playing uh, in, in other more sort of fusion-type situations. So I needed to, you know, round out my uh, my sound-producing items. I can't remember which I got first, but I remember going to a Manny's on 48th Street, yep. and uh, Rick Stevenson was the guy, the main guy upstairs in the keyboard room. And he's the one who convinced me that I should get a, an octave plateau Voyetra if I want to, uh, you know, have something in my rig that just screamed analog. Wow. <laughs> um, and uh, I did get one. I ended up getting a second one a few years after that. Oh, boy. I mean, uh, I had the Insonic Mirage.
3: Yeah, the good old Insonic. Remember the first, The first sampler, man, I tell you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> had the floppy disk on it. Uh, remember that? What's that? <laughs> had the floppy disk on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did.
2: It played, it played
1: out on those two and a half inch discs, I guess yeah. they were, whatever
3: they are. I remember that. My goodness. You couldn't play a chord, though, because I think it was only like, uh, you know, <laughs> what was the. I mean, I think you could play three notes. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it, it was. It, and and it, it certainly wasn't very roadworthy.
2: Yeah, I know. Yeah.
1: Um, I think the sample I had it. Yeah, I. I I lo- I lost that one pretty quickly and and moved to the uh, Casio FC1. Yeah, and the FC10 and 20.
3: Oh, my goodness, did you ever have the the, the CZ101? I mean, um, later on the Casio.
1: No, no, not uh, But uh, but that Casio sampler actually sounded really great.
3: <laughs> it's amazing. They weighed
1: a ton. They were heavy as hell.
3: I know there was very those Casios were very underrated and they outperformed anything. <laughs>
1: They, they were great. I still have them. I mean, I don't know if they were, but I still got them in my studio.
3: That's interesting.
1: And then also around that time, I was doing, uh, I was doing work on Michael Breck. Two of Michael Brecker's uh, solo albums, and mm-hmm. uh, he just he said, "I have this extra Oberheim Expander. You want to just?" <laughs> wanna that's just awesome. take
3: it? Take it, please. <laughs> you say, okay, did, sure. Heard, sorry, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, speaking, you're starting to speak of uh, some some artists that you've worked with, um, and some guys that are maybe even playing with some played on some of your personal records. But me and Rick want to take a little uh, uh, diversion here and talk about a little bit about your 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 solo projects because. You know, as you know, as everybody knows, the, they read you on the liner notes for a lot of bands, such as Steely Dan. But uh, they should also need to know that you have a quite collection of uh, your personal work. So, if you don't mind, me and Rick are going to bring up up a couple of the, your, um, a few of your, your solo albums, and um, and then you just give us a little bit short, brief commentary of of those projects and 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 uh, and, and, and fill in some color there for us, okay?
2: Oh, okay, sure.
3: So the first one, of course, your very first solo album was in 1990. It's called Song of the Sun featuring uh, Wayne Shorter and Walter Brecker. In fact, you just mentioned him. And other musos. I mean, it was huge monsters. John Harrington was on it. Anthony Jackson, Dennis Chambers, Kenny, Aronoff, Mino Cinelli, and and, uh, and you know, even uh, Toots Teelsman who – who uh as you probably heard you know he passed away this i think just was it a couple days ago yeah i think it was a couple a days
2: couple ago a couple days ago of course
3: yeah, and, yeah uh, what what a what a tragedy what a sad we we're all you know really sad about that but tell us about that that uh that recording in 1990 song of the sun would you please
1: oh well it was pretty ambitious it was for cti records um this was back when there were actually record companies and they actually gave record deals with good recording budgets yeah. um, you know That doesn't happen anymore. But in 1990, it did happen. And uh, I had worked for Creed Taylor on a couple of other projects of other records he had, you know, because he was in a, he was sort of in a comeback period for CPI around that time. And I just, I had all this music I was writing and demoing, and uh, Michael Brecker was recording some of that music on his records, and I just got a whole bunch of other music, and I just put together a proposal for Creed Taylor and um, he said yeah and yep he said, okay I'll sign you up and let's just start this record so I mean it was just, it was really a fantasy record for me I just wow, I really thought like if I could pick three soloists in, in my dreams of my dreams you know who would be the three musicians I would want to speak on my music and, and the three were Wayne Shorter Michael Brecker and two Steelmans um And they all said yes. I mean, they all asked to hear demos, um, and when they heard the music I'd written, they all agreed to do the record. And it was uh, just—it was just such a thrill.
3: Wow, that's amazing! And
1: all those fantastic rhythm section people—some, you know, some still with us, some not doing so well, some are gone. Don Elias is not with us anymore. But yeah, I mean, I just made a post on Facebook uh, about Toots, uh, and I put a Mm -hmm. little link to uh, one of the songs he played on on that record called Diana. And, uh, I'll never forget it because I had tracked the song in, in, uh, in, the States here. He was living, actually he had a home in, uh, in, in Long Island, but he also had a home in Belgium, which is where he was. So sure. I had a flight to Belgium to record him there. Wow. And, uh, I had music and he'd asked a couple questions and he'd listen to it once or twice for like, like a run through. And I was in the control booth and he was in the, the sound room, and uh, he says, Jim, I want you to come out here, get a chair, and pull up and sit here next to me. And I was like, what? You know, he says, yeah. He says, I'm going to play this, but I want you to be here and sit right here, right here next to me. Wow. So I just I did what he asked, and uh, he played that song, uh, Top to Bottom. That was his first um, solo. And uh, when he finished playing that song, he had tears coming down his face. Wow. It was just like the most incredible experience. Hmm.
2: My goodness!
1: He was just like a, a really unbelievable uh, a person. Another extremely gentle, beautiful person. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, you know, we we've been doing some live gigs together too. I've played in the states and in Europe with him. And I remember one time uh, we were playing in uh, Quebec City, I think it was, and it was a band with. Uh, I can't remember everybody there. I know Billy Cobham was in the band. It was a French bass player, myself and Toots. And we were on an intermission going to, uh, get a, you know, a coffee breaker and walking down the alley behind the venue. Sure. And Toots sometimes would have a little respiratory problems. He'd get like a phlegm. I don't know if it was actually full blown asthma, but he would, you know, he'd kind of be hacking and wheezing sometimes. And he says, Jim, I want you to, uh, me some, do me do me a favor now. He says, I'm going to lean over, and I want you to hit me on my back as hard as you can. He says, no, don't be afraid. I really want you to do this. I want you to hit me on my back as hard as you can.
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> and so I did, and he kind of coughed, and he got the stuff out of his lungs, wow. And uh, that was something I'll never forget. Wow. But I also realized that he did ask me the sort of the, I was, you know, very thin, guy. He didn't ask Billy Cobham. I don't think he would have survived it if he had asked
2: Billy Cobham. <laughs> So um, anyway, but the uh, that 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 whole record
1: was just uh really um really a joy to make. And it was it was I think it was fairly well received as well.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm just so glad that you're I'm I'm so saddened of what just happened a couple of days ago, but I'm just so fortunate and uh, and glad that you're talking to us about yeah. too. It's because yeah. not everybody gets to play with a legend like this guy, and you know sometimes the music doesn't. Uh, you know you you get the the artists, the players, the instrumentalists to fit you what you're writing, and it doesn't happen like this with for every artist. And um, so I'm just really thank you for for those comments. That's that's really cool. Um, Let's move on in a couple, uh, for a couple albums. Let's put two t- together. First is Lost at the Carnival, which was, of course, uh, voted one, uh, of the, the top ten new projects and, uh, in Jazz's magazine back in 95. And also in 97, you had Truly. Which was also, it took that same honors from, from Jazzes. Um, you know, uh, the, the first one was, uh, was really, really cool. You even had Bill Evans, I think, play, playing on this. Talk, talk to us about this album, Lost at the Carnival. It's got some neat bass, uh, um, bass lines on chunks and chair knobs. Awesome track.
1: Yeah, I would have to say, um, that, you know, all, I guess, you know, four records starting from my first Advocate, I just was into, um, I don't even know how I can describe it. It's just the style of writing where almost like the place where I'm getting most of my inspiration is from a storytelling kind of place. Like, with everything I would write, I would imagine it to be sort of like a soundtrack to a character or a soundtrack to a strange, short little mini-movie and, and uh, you know, how do these people act in the movie and what is this character? Where? How do they walk? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they you know? And and um, so that was kind of how I I really uh, saw my approach to the you know composing and um, definitely like uh, Song of the Sun, also The Carnival and Truly, really, I, I was just into sort of these small chamber um. Arrangements you know little little groups of uh woodwinds clarinets mm-hmm. oboes, and uh, I think there's even some there's a string quartet on truly and and uh I always liked um to get that sound um in there basically because uh I mean you know like real you know real uh true-to-the-core jazz fusion bands, they, all those things would have been done by sense. And I guess I certainly did synth things in there, but, but having, you know, little ensembles with real human beings playing the parts just seemed to uh, give it the life that I was looking for. Yet, you know, I, I kind of feel like Lost at the Carnival was a reaction to Song of the Sun and truly was a reaction to Lost at the Carnival.
2: Yeah.
1: Um... You know, what was on MTV and so much of the time and the music that was really being sort of shoved down yes. everybody's throat at yeah, that time right. was, was um, rap and hip-hop and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of sort of what it would seem to me to be sort of like anger-based music.
2: Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, just, you know, people producing tracks that felt mean and angry and... Mm-hmm harmful and resentful, and mm-hmm. and like on Truly, I remember it was just, I, I I made it a challenge for myself to use a lot of those sounds and a lot of those production techniques, but to try to um, have it be more joyfully oriented, I guess I could say, mm-hmm. uh, more fun, more positive. Mm-hmm. You know, more positive feeling than negative feeling. I guess is what I'm trying
0: to say. And you know, Jim, there's something I've noticed about a lot of your music. Um, uh, when I've listened, guys, I've listened, I've listened to all of your albums, and, and um, you, you kind of at times, and actually maybe more often than not, you throw like a very lighthearted, whimsical sort of you know feel. Whether it comes in the form of what you do instrumentally or with it, if it's sound effects or if it's using like. Spoken word or samples, you 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 tend to have like sort of a whimsical approach in a lot of in a lot of uh, your, your work.
1: Yeah, um, I, I never bought into the the, the concept or idea that um, humor um, will will degrade your music. Mm-hmm. Um, humor will make your music less serious. I don't I don't mm-hmm. believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, humor is just one of a whole bunch of emotions. Sure. Um, And I, I, you know, I just, I'm not afraid to use it, so I I do when I feel like it's, when it it can say something, when it can contribute. And I think sometimes I used it because I, I, you know, a a part of me knows that writing something maybe a little bit more complicated, a little bit more advanced, uh, harmonically, maybe form-wise, difficult sort of changes maybe here and there, and so... I'm. I'm already trying to like create my own antidote to it. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm second guessing everybody. You know I'm yeah. saying like, see,
0: yeah. I already
1: know what it's like. <laughs> so, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna throw this in there just to show you that I know.
0: You got one more, Eddie,
3: right? Yeah, I've got one more. And that's basically, um, you know, I'm very curious about Show of Hands. I mean, uh, um, you know, um, you know, not not to not recognize uh, Revolutions because that's an amazing album with the Metropole Orchestra. I beautiful. love that. Yeah, that's an amazing album. Yes. Yeah. But in 2013, 2013, Show of Hands, it's uh, wow, you really did some beautiful piano work, and uh, and you had, uh, you know, you were playing tunes from, you know, Woolard Robinson. You know Wayne Shorter, Dizzy Gillespie, Guy Wood, Fat Swaller, and uh, wow, what a, what a beautiful! I actually was playing that album today at the office for my my staff. You know, as they were working, I, we we were playing this thing, and they just said, hey, "You know, who is this? Who is this?" and and I said, "I'll tell you after I'm done." <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, but we enjoyed that at, at the at the studio, and um and uh, but you know, I just want to talk about. There's a one track, "Old Folks" by Willard. Um, rob uh, robinson and uh it's so complex it's beautiful it's how challenging was this album for you you know as you were playing other people's compositions
1: well it i guess i've been uh um threatening myself to to do this record for four or five years before i actually made it mm-hmm. and uh i think what sort of pushed me over the edge was a lot of people just said jim you know you really need to make a solo piano record um, yeah. Like in 2009 and 2011, I was doing a lot of these solo, extended piano introductions and Stewie Dan concerts, um, you know, and kind of doing a lot of similar things to what you're here on that record, but in front of you know, six thousand people in an audience, and and people were liking it, and and so and then everybody just kept saying like, you know, you need to do this, you need to make a record. So I finally bit um, the bullet and and uh, went to Yamaha, picked out a piano, and took a couple of days up at the carriage house and recorded it. And whenever I was just by myself, uh, time off, I always liked, I always enjoyed playing piano Mm -hmm. and kind of messing around with ideas and arrangements. And, and, uh, you know, George Shearing obviously is a a huge motivator and inspiration. A couple of tracks, or more than a couple, are, are, are very much, you know, in honor of him. I'm tipping my hat to George. Yeah. Uh, especially the uh, um, the United States National Anthem. Because I don't know if you've ever heard his record called, uh, it's called My Ship.
2: Hmm. Yeah. No, uh-uh. uh
1: George Shearing, George it's, uh, it's a solo piano record that he made. Okay. Which, to me, I think is one of the greatest solo piano records ever.
0: Wow, wow. My uh, Ship.
1: Yeah, check it out.
0: Okay. Um, Writing that down.
1: So, um, To An Acre in Heaven, yeah. I, I mean, that, that that's exciting to me, uh, what I was trying to do with that was I I said, okay, if George was going to do this, what would he do? And also sort of like uh, the the theme and variation thing with uh, old folks would be something like he would do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had had a few songs, originals that were laying around and Seem like they
3: would work for solo piano. And uh. well, I definitely recommend to our listening audience g- get get your hands on Jim's work and uh, and don't forget that uh, the album 2013 Show of Hands. It's a beautiful yeah. piano
0: album. Everybody will enjoy it. Well, hey Jim and Eddie, uh, let's take a break and let's check out a track from the Revolutions album from 2008 that, of course, Jim collaborated on with Vince Mendoza, and this is a track called Trip and features the Metropole Orchestra. From our guest today, Jim Beard on Inside MusicCast. Jim we're just about finished but uh, I can't let you go without talking a little Steely Dan and um, and you know you've been touring with them since around 2009 and Eddie and I were talking and I don't believe we've ever heard or know about how you got the gig and how you joined the band the touring band so tell us about um, that and, and and your experience with Steely Dan
1: okay um, well I had met both Donald and Walter years ago mm-hmm. Walter was making a solo record uh, his CD called Circus Money.
0: Yeah, that's a great I, album. I think
1: it's a very, very nice CD.
0: It is, yeah.
1: And I guess they had the rhythm section they were tracking. It was uh, John and Keith Carlock yep. and uh, Ted Baker was doing keys, but they they realized that with the way the music was that they really wanted to track with two keyboard players. Okay. So uh, John and Keith, I think they recommended me and and. uh Larry Klein also had known about me, uh, who was producing that record, but I was on vacation in the, in the Caribbean with my family and, uh, and my kid's grandmother. So I got a call saying like, um, can you be at, uh, Avatar tomorrow at two o'clock to record on Walter's record? And, and uh, and I was like, oh, this is great timing. Um <laughs> you know, but I said yes. I explained to my family, I said, look, I got I gotta do this. Uh this is just, you know, something really important. And I would I can kind of spend the rest of the vacation with my family. So I flew to New York and, and uh did the tracking and then subsequently some overdubbing for that record. So that was my first sort of personal work experience with one of the Stewie Dan uh, brothers, Walter Becker. Right. And then we jumped forward to two thousand and eight, and uh I got a call from I think John may have called me, and then I got a message from uh, their manager saying that they had a just a week of gigs in November of two thousand and eight, and their keyboard player at the time, Jeff Young, oh, yeah. had another commitment. he was also working with uh, Jackson Brown, and he couldn't make this week of gigs, and they wanted to know if I would uh If I could, you know, sub if I could do those uh, gigs, it was all uh, some East Coast gigs, and I said, absolutely, I can do it. Um, So I just I got their set list, their you know the book of tunes they were working with, and and that was a very uh, unusual feeling experience. you know, I started playing the songs, and I felt like I knew them all already because I, I just listen I knew their music, and so I'd, I'd be playing to a song, and I'd say, Man, oh, I love this song. This is such a great song. I make it to the next one. I'd say, Oh, man, I love this song. This is such a great song. I make it to the next one. The same thing. I mean, it's just its such an incredible catalog of music. And uh, it felt like it was like no effort at all to. to "Quote unquote," learn the music. I I really did feel like I already knew it. So anyway, the the week of gigs went pretty well. I I suppose it went well because two months later, I got an email asking if I'd be available to do the uh, the 2009 world tour. So I don't know. All I can say is that I guess uh, Donald and Walter liked what they heard on that week of gigs. That's awesome. And uh, decided to make 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 a change.
3: And that's then.
0: That's fantastic, and, and you're you're still enjoying it. You've got another tour coming up in October, and uh, I think you've, well, you've got the gigs at the Beacon coming up, right?
1: Yeah, we got um, I think at least ten dates at the Beacon.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Wow,
1: yeah. And a couple of other uh, upstate New York gigs before that. No, mm-hmm. oh, no, I still love it. It's it's just yeah. I, I just never get tired of the music.
0: Yeah, oh, I, it's I'm really, just
1: <laughs> It's just really classic, timeless, great music.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We were playing Monte Carlo. I think this was in two thousand nine, and. Uh, Julian Lennon was at the show, and he came back to our dressing room afterwards, and he he walked, and he said, there's three things, and only three things. He said, there's Keith Jarrett, there's the Beatles, and there's Steely Dan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. That's great. I would agree. I mean, there's there's never a bad time to put the needle on a Steely Dan record. It's just you know, and it doesn't matter which one. You can pull any of them out, and and they're just they all they all just work. I mean, for me anyway, any any time of the day, it doesn't matter yeah. what mood I'm in. I can listen to Steely Dan. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, we're about to wrap up, but there's one more thing I wanted to talk about, and, and you mentioned to me last week when we were setting up uh, this interview that. Um, you, you're supposed to be uh, heading into production with uh, Mike Stern this week, but uh, but I guess la- about a month ago or so, Mike fell, and he, he broke his arm, and uh, he had to cancel gigs and other work because of his injury. And uh, So I wondered what the outlook is for Mike and, uh, and your work on this new project.
1: Yeah, we were supposed to uh, start in the studio this week, actually. Yeah. Um, well, he actually broke both arms.
0: Oh um, my gosh, uh, <laughs> okay. I know, it's,
1: it's just really, it's wow. just tragic tragic.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> oh. one, one arm was a, a clean break, and no problem with that. The other arm was a more complicated break, and you had oh. to get the screws and the plates. And,
2: oh. oh my um, God.
1: I talked to him yesterday, and, and his spirits are up, and he's having a procedure done, I think next week, where they're, it's called tendon replacement. <sighs> um, apparently, as he was telling me, the doctor says, you know, people have more tendons than they actually use or need in your body. Uh-huh. Some are just sort of dormant there, and they can uh, go on. But it, they say uh, after this procedure that he could be playing as soon as two weeks after it. <laughs> no, so, no way. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. That um, is amazing. Uh, we're like Right now we're planning on just getting together to work on the music again at the end of September, and then yeah. hopefully try to uh, get to the recording in October at some point,
0: wow, well,
1: but um yeah, I mean, you know he but he he sounds good, he's getting better, you know it was very painful for him for for a stretch there, but yeah I can't imagine it is getting it is getting better now,
0: we'll definitely keep him in our thoughts and uh and you know jim we we've covered a lot of territory with you, and we really appreciate all of your time and uh uh it, there's there's probably a lot of things that we we I think we skipped over a lot of things, but I know we've kept you for a long time. But um, maybe we can have you back on again sometime. We can you know we maybe love that. maybe after uh, you work with Mike and we can talk about that record or something. And, and sure. uh, but we'll definitely that'd, keep yeah, in touch. Great. and uh, And thanks so much for all the time. We really appreciate it.
3: Well oh, it's been it's been a it's been a joy. I think people are going to love this. They know your name already. Our listeners do, and uh, so, and, and your music. And I think this is just a, a cherry on top of the cake. So thank you again. Okay.
1: Oh, thank you, Rick and Eddie for. Uh Wanting to do this It's really It's nice oh, no, You're great. very
0: welcome uh, Take care Jim
1: Okay
0: Bye 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 Special thanks to Jim Beard for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Scott Gross, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brido, Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside Music Cast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside Music Cast is powered by Earshot Audio Post, and Cabello Associates if you'd like to support Inside Music Cast all you need to do is shop at Amazon there's no extra cost to you and your purchases will support future Inside Music Cast content simply visit InsideMusicCast.com and click on the Amazon banner for Eddie Cabello I'm Rick Such thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio